Hi, I'm Dr. Eric Hanberg, and I'm a forensic pathologist and medical examiner, and this is Becoming a Medical Examiner. On this podcast, I interview other medical examiners, and we talk about what it was like for them becoming a medical examiner, what it was like for them to actually get to the point where they can do this job. And today, I'm joined by Dr. Hannah Jarvis. Hannah, can you introduce yourself? Yes, absolutely, Eric. Um, so, as I said, my name is Dr. Hannah Jarvis. I am also a forensic pathologist, and I work as the Assistant Deputy Chief Medical Examiner here in Houston, Texas. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to do the podcast. And I'll tell you, so um, because I don't think you've had a chance to listen to the episodes, there's a, a pretty typical format that I follow. And the first question I always ask is usually the first question that we get asked, which is, what, what the hell is it that we actually do? How do you describe what the job we do is? That is a great question. We are the last doctors who will ever examine somebody. We are the doctors who give the final chapter in someone's life and, and, and tell their story. We give closure to families. We tell them how and why somebody died. And we get to be part of the criminal justice system and go and testify on behalf of these uh, victims of homicides, for example. And we get to go to the courtroom and, and give evidence in their trials. Um, and, and we give closure and help to, to all of their families. Totally. So if, if you were talking to, I always use my mom as an example, cause I, she, you know, she's very proud of me, but I really don't believe she fully <laughs> understands what I do. Can you, how would you explain to her what it is that we actually do practically? How do we investigate things? So a large part of our job is doing autopsy examinations. And that means looking on the outside of a body and on the inside of, of the body, examining bodies for evidence of diseases and injuries, examining all of the different organs of the body, and again, looking for any type of diseases that they may have, any heart disease, cancers, things such as that, as well as injuries that they may have, such as a stab wound, a gunshot wound, or an injury that they sustained in a car crash, for example. So we document very carefully what the body is telling us. The body is the silent witness to their last moments of life. And we have the privilege of interpreting the findings. Yeah, that's nice. So you used a word that I, I, I think a lot of us use as kind of like, I don't think any of us love the word, but it is a big part of our job, which is you said we document these things. And that's, that is true. That's a big part of our job is actually, it's not just, uh, you know, being there. So I think doing notes is a big part of, of being a doctor of any kind, but I think for us, it's more so, you know, I, I guess, what am I trying to say? Like a family medicine doctor, they just record whatever it is they told someone to do and what they saw. Like it's, it seems simpler, but for us, I think we're trying really hard to create a truly like a, a words picture when we write our, when we document our, our autopsies, at least that's how I feel. Yes, I agree. We, you know, we're using body diagrams, we're annotating, we're making diagrams and notes and drawings at the time of the case and translating all of that into documents that are used legally and, and for the benefit of the families, writing death certificates and producing autopsy reports. Now you you just mentioned doing drawings. Now I do occasionally do drawings. I will say my my art skills in the morgue are not impressive. What kind of drawings <laughs> are you talking about? Drawing injuries or what do you draw? 
Yes, drawing injuries, we have, like you, I'm not the best artist, but um, we at least have some pre-prepared body diagrams, the outline of a body that we can then annotate, make notes on, and make drawings, exactly as you said, drawing the rough shape of an injury that might be there. Sometimes it's easier just to draw it rather than describe these things. And we're obviously, as well as drawing, we're taking photographs of these things, but it's nice to be able to just document them on that body diagram, which then can then be translated into words at, um, at a later time. That's, that's exactly what I do. And, and I find one of my more embarrassing traits is when I, when I do the body diagrams, I have finally gotten over the ego uh, blow that it costs me where when I'm doing, when I'm using the body diagram, I will hold the clipboard upside down because if I don't, I often mix up left and right, and it's the most irritating thing in the world. So it's just easier for me to do it that way. I don't know. Maybe it's only for me, but uh, it does no, help me. me too. <laughs> I, for some reason, too, the left and right is, I think, I guess it's a common thread amongst us because I, I too, sometimes find myself thinking, nope, <laughs> yeah. that should be the right. It's and and with pathology, you know, radiology, they always do left is on the right, right is on the left. But pathology, we don't do that. Ah, it can be so frustrating. It really makes me feel kind of dumb when I mix those up. But what are you going to do? That's what <laughs> photographs are for, I suppose. Yes. <laughs> so I in general, the point of the podcast is I talk to you more about who you are. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't mean to spoil this for anyone who's listening, but if you can't tell from our voices, I do suspect you and I have a different background. So it sounds like you might have an accent. Do you mind if I ask where that's from? Of course, yes. So I am originally from England, grew up in London. Oh, so you were in London proper. I was, yes. So I was born in London, grew up there. Then when I was in my early teens, my family moved up to Oxford, a little village outside of Oxford, and then I came back to London for medical school. So I spent um, up until my late twenties, actually, in in well, in England and Wales. Oh, interesting. Okay, well, so I, I like to go through people's background, but I guess I don't have really a touchstone for what high school what high school is like. Is there a what do you call high school in England? Is it still called high school, or is there another word for it? Yes, I guess everything is different over the pond there. And um, so we <laughs> we call it secondary school. So you go through nursery school, primary school, secondary school. And secondary school leads you into what's called sixth form, which is from the age of 16 to 18. And then off you go to university. And in my case, uh, I was 18 years old and off I went to medical school. Okay. And so you started medical school at 18. How long is medical school in England? So, yes, it's a little bit different over there compared to the United States because exactly as you said, we go directly from school into medical school. And we spend six, I, well, I spent six years at medical school. We spend two years doing the preclinical, pre-clinical studies, so microbiology, anatomy, physiology, sort of the, the, the building blocks of medical school and the foundation of mm. your learning. So that's two years. Then I took one year out from medical school per se and did a Bachelor of Science Honours degree in pathology. And then after that, 
I came back to into medical school and spent three years in the clinical rotation. So it's a six-year program in total, and you end up with both your medical degree and your bachelor of science degree at the end of that six-year period. Interesting. So how does that yeah. work when you, I'm going to jump ahead a bit and say, how does that work when you came to the U.S.? Do, do you get reciprocity or did you have to repeat things? Yes, it's definitely a different process for being an international medical graduate, as we're called. So after I finished medical school, I, I, my path into forensics is, is very, is not straightforward. Um, I actually, after medical school, went into surgery as a career and I spent the eight year, the first eight years after medical school, I was in postgraduate surgical training in the United Kingdom. I see. And so, <laughs> and so then I was specifically within the field of orthopedic surgery. And after uh, six years of postgraduate surgical training in the United Kingdom, I came over to the United States. And that was primarily because my parents, when I was a second year medical student, had actually emigrated to the United States. And oh, so wow. They, they beat you to it. They did. Yeah, they came over a long time ago now. And um, so I was at medical school and they, so I was frequently flying on transatlantic flights back and forth between our two continents. And I, after a period of time, felt that I wanted to come to the United States. It's hard being separated from your family for so long. And my sister was out here too. And um, so I needed to figure out how could I be a physician in the United States. And it, it, you don't necessarily have to repeat any training, but I did have to take the, the United States medical licensing exams, the USMLE exams. So I had to go through all of those. And then at that point, you can apply for um, a certificate from the Educational Commission for Foreign Medical Graduates to say that you've basically become an equivalent as a graduated medical student from the United States. Interesting. And then, so then you came here because you had done surgical training there. That's when you got here is when you began a residency in pathology. So um, I did. Spend another two years within the field of orthopedics doing uh, some clinical research as well as a junior trauma fellowship. And then it was, I guess what I had not quite anticipated coming to the United States was that I would have to start from the beginning of residency training for surgery. That was my original plan. But what I had not anticipated was understanding that orthopedic surgery was going to be one of the most competitive, tough fields to apply to get into. Ah, okay. And so, um, understandably, most of the um, programs shared with me that, you know, they got so, they're so overwhelmed with American graduates that it's hard for them to really look at accepting anybody that's international, which is understandable. Yeah. And so... Here I was, I found myself somebody with, you know, a decade of clinical experience after medical school, somebody who was a surgeon who loved anatomy, loved dissecting, and growing up with my mom, who was always a true crime lover, <laughs> and had got me watching the Dr. G show <laughs> and other shows that 
showcase what for the world of forensic pathology is about. She was the one that actually suggested to me, well, have you thought about forensic pathology? And so at that point, your uh, mom was. I <laughs> yeah, she suggested it to me. <laughs> she, <laughs> um, so it became, it, it really felt like a good fit that it, all of the skills that I had was going to be a good fit for forensic pathology. And so I applied to pathology residency and um, went up to New York City to, to start that back in 2012. Okay, so let, let me go back and say your parents moved from the UK to America. Where did they move? So, yeah, we definitely have, well, I've definitely had a journey across the United States. So when they first came, they were in South Carolina. Okay. And so that was the first time, in fact, actually, I had ever been to the United States. I was, was arriving in South Carolina to visit them for the first time. Um, my father had visited the United States many times over his career. And it was, he was the one, he was offered a job out here in the United States. And, and that was the reason that our family came here. Okay. And so they were in South Carolina, then they went to Wisconsin, and we survived, I think, eight Wisconsin winters. <laughs> wow. And then, and then my family went back to South Carolina, and then my father retired, but wanted to see where I was going to end up. And at this point, I had also been living in Colorado, Missouri, and then was in New York. And oh, so, wow. So when I, you moved here, you did not go just to be in the same state as your parents. You were just sort of in the same country. Same country, yeah. They When I finally came over, they were in Wisconsin. So I went to Wisconsin, first of all, and then Wisconsin to St. Louis, Missouri, and then Vail, Colorado, and then from Colorado to New York. And then that was when my father was retiring and they wanted to see where I was going to permanently end up and with the plan of moving to the same city where I was going to be. I, they were not that keen to go back to the Midwest after having <laughs> been through multiple winters up there. And so uh, when I finally settled and chose Houston, Texas as the next destination, that was, um, that seemed okay with everybody. And so, um, and so here we are. So it sounds like you had a lot of coordinating with family and, and people close to you trying to figure out exactly where you were going to go. But let's go with you. You did residency. It sounds like you did residency in New York. Yes, I did. Yep, I did anatomic and clinical pathology residency training in uh, New York City at Montefiore Medical Center. Okay. And what borough is that? Well, at least when I was a resident there, they claimed to have the the largest amount of residents in medical training in the United States is an absolutely enormous amount of residents that go through their hospital system up there. Um, and they have multiple hospitals throughout the Bronx. Um, I, the one that I was mostly based at was in an area of the Bronx called Norwood, which is at the very northern end of that part um, of New York City. So what was that like for you? You were you were in the UK for your whole life and you started going back and forth to you, the US uh, to South Carolina, which is very much not like the Bronx. And right. then you decided to go up to the Bronx. And at the time, your family was not in New York. So it sounds like right. you went to the Bronx. Were you going alone or did you have people go with you? I was alone. I, I Except for my, 
Russian blue cat Tucker, <laughs> who I had. Ad- <laughs> so it was just Tucker and I. Tucker, I had adopted him from the animal shelter in Colorado when I lived there, and um, Tucker and I uh, drove across the bridge into the Bronx for the first time. Uh, it wasn't my first time in New York City, but certainly the first time driving in New York City, and um, drove drove the rental car actually into the city, and we arrived. And it was definitely, as you said, different from South Carolina, different from Colorado, Missouri, Wisconsin. It, you know, it was me in New York City and, and me by myself. But I would say for me personally, I'm somebody that loves adventure, loves traveling, <laughs> loves experiencing new things. So it just felt like the beginning of a new chapter, the beginning of a, a new adventure. Interesting. And so, how did yeah. it compare to London? Because when I think of London, I mean, I, I, in, I, I'm sure this will be uh, ignorant, if not offensive, but I think of it as the New York of England. It's the big city there. So how did it compare to someone who was a city, per, a big city person growing up? Did it feel different or did it feel more like what you were used to growing up? I think it was different. It just, you know, it had some similarities. You know, we have the, the tube and then in New York, obviously, it's the subway system. So there's sort of similar feel of how do you get around this city? Um, it just, but it, but it's New York, you know, and it, it's just a very busy city. Everybody's lives are on top of one another and it, it's just a busy place to be. Um, but it, but it has everything. You know, it, it really, that, that city has everything much the same as, as London does. Mm-hmm. So a lot of similarities. Um, so it wasn't too alien to show up and start the next six years, actually, of what turned out to be a six-year adventure for me in, in New York City. So what was that like? Because you were, I mean, I think pathology has a lot of non-traditional students who go into it in general, I should say trainees, but I I think not only being someone who is international, but someone who has practiced in a different field and you got pretty far into another field. uh, What was that like starting residency with, I imagine some of your co-residents were were quite junior to you in experience. Did that, did it bother you? Was it welcome? Did you feel like it helped? Tell me what that felt like. Yeah. Very mixed feelings going into it because, you know, as you said, it's sort of a decade later since I finished medical school. Here I was about to start again and start afresh, start in a new field. And I really didn't know what to expect, except for I went in there on day one and said, I'm only interested in getting to the point where I can be a forensic pathologist. Um, And so the goal was already set. But it was difficult going in there starting from here I am again as what's considered year one, despite, you know, this 10 years have gone by. Absolutely. Hannah, I can, I can really sympathize with that. I didn't do nearly as much, but I did emergency medicine uh, for a few years Ah. prior. And I, you know, it was the strangest feeling, just feeling like I I really can't believe I'm about to start over. And I'll tell you a, a memory from my interviews for pathology was touring around, you know, you go to these interviews and you meet with people and everyone's very nice. And I I enjoy talking to people. And then they always insist on taking you on a tour. And when they take Mm -hmm. you on the tour, for some reason, all campuses feel like they want to show off their lab equipment. And I remember someone (laughs) show, I don't remember which institution it was, but they were showing me their like blood analyzer equipment. And I remember thinking, what the hell am I doing here? (laughs) 
<laughs> I, I have seen 5,000 patients and treated heart attacks, and now they're showing me their right. mass spectrometer. And I was like, I felt, I felt like a, an, an intruder. I felt inappropriate. I don't know what the word is. Like, I felt like an imposter standing there <laughs> acting like, wow, I'm so impressed with this. And I just really, it took me a while to get over that. I did, eventually I did. I mean, I still don't really care about those machines. I mean, they're great, but I don't care about them. But it took me a while to get over that feeling. How long did it take for you to start feeling like, you know, this is where I belong? Or did you? Um, yeah, it took years, I think. I mean, I was always looking in the rearview mirror for a long time, thinking about, you know, similar to you, all the, all the patients that you had treated for years and, and being in the operating rooms and, and and just leaving that whole life behind and trying to understand how it applies to what I'm doing now. And I have a similar feeling too. I remember when they gave me my schedule for residency on that first day and I remember looking at it and thinking, this doesn't look like anything like I was expecting. I didn't understand <laughs> it. They had <laughs> well, what, what is this? Is that informatics? What is this? I'm doing microbiology. What is this? So I just want to be a forensic pathologist. What, what is all this? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I just felt like this was very alien. Everybody else seemed more excited about these things than I did. And I, it was a huge struggle. I mean, just to even understand how, you know, I mean, in my bachelor's science degree was in pathology, but it was, it was something very different to what the American residency uh, seemed to be set up like. So it was not what I was expecting. I had no idea where I, what I was doing there. And I think it took years. And, you know, every now and again, even now, I will think to myself, gosh, you know, I wonder if I'd have just somehow found a way forward um, as a surgeon, what would my life be like? But then, you know, I smile and think to myself that <laughs> I think I actually ended up exactly where I needed to be. Yeah, that's, you know, it's so funny. I think the same. And I, I've, I used to have a, what I called a canned answer for when people would ask me things like that. Um, you know, how do I miss it and that kind of thing. And, and I think the answer is even truer now than when I started saying it, which is that I really loved the stories I got from working in the ER, but I have mm -hmm. those stories still, and I don't need more. And I really, I, I remember those experiences and I at least remember the good ones fondly and, uh, and that's great, but I really am happy in what I do now. Do you feel like, I mean, you feel happy with what you do now? seems like you do. <laughs> I do. I do. I, I get so much enjoyment out of what I do now as a forensic pathologist and, you know, it's, Everything I did for that 10 years after medical school, not a single second of it was wasted. And I, you know, I'm sure you feel the same that, you know, now as a forensic pathologist, I have a much better understanding of looking through medical records, looking at operative procedures that have taken place, understanding, you know, everything that happened to that person in the hospital and, and now doing an autopsy on somebody that has had a surgical procedure. Everything that I did for 10 years has put me at a distinct advantage of interpreting, understanding, communicating with those hospital physicians um, than what I would have done if I think if I'd have just gone straight into pathology. It, and, and I think communication too. I think having been a doctor for, you know, in, in the clinical realm for so long, I, I really think that it gives you extra skills in terms of communicating and understanding um, 
families and what their needs are and being able to talk to them. I, I, I just don't think a single second was, was wasted. And I think that I, every day I'm actually now grateful for that, that all Absolutely. that simple experience. Absolutely. I fully agree. And I mean, I, I won't, I'm not going to deny that I do wish that I just had been practicing for five additional years and had made that money. That's not in question, but, <laughs> but I don't think that, I mean, I, I use those skills that you're talking about that I had gotten from the ER. I use that knowledge, the ability to summarize a patient after two minutes of reading the chart, the ability to call mm-hmm. families and summarize my actual thought process. That's something I had a lot of practice with in the emergency room and I do use it. Whether or not I think it's worth the hundreds of thousands of dollars of lost income, eh, you know, <laughs> it is what it is. But <laughs> but I do think it, it does make me a better forensic pathologist. But on that topic, you said that you did APCP, correct? Correct, I so did. So for, for anybody listening that doesn't know, uh, that's anatomic pathology and clinical pathology. And the way the training works is that you can either do three years of AP three years of CP, or you can do four years of training and you can get both and you can do board exam in both. And what is required to do forensic pathology is AP CP is not required, but it's typically what people do. Cause you know, you get four, you get two for barely more than the cost of one, but it is still more than the cost of one. And having done more training before this, what is it that led you to choose to do AP CP rather than just say AP only? You know, I've got to be very honest about this one. I think when I signed up for residency, there was no real discussion with us as to which training pathway we wanted to enter into. And I think it was my uh, lack of understanding of, of the options at that point. There was no real discussion when we started residency as there were any options of doing one track or the other. And so I actually enjoyed doing both anatomic and clinical pathology, I think that having rotations in clinical pathology did break up the pretty brutal rotations that we did in anatomic pathology. There's some pretty long hours and days in that. And so having a break where we're doing blood transfusion for a couple of months or in the microbiology lab, hematology labs, it did help break up the, the training. And I think that it still helps. There's still knowledge that we gained from doing those rotations, I would say. But I think for me, it was once I just started, they automatically signed me up for this track and I decided just to keep going with it. I did have a couple of co-residents after a year or so who decided to, one actually chose CP only, the other one actually chose AP only. So we did have a couple of people midway through decide just to uh, switch pathways there. But for me, I felt that I would get no knowledge seemed to be ever wasted. And I just kept moving forward with the path that I had already started on. Okay. Now being where you're at now. So, uh, you know, one of, one of the leadership of a major forensic pathology institution, what, what would you say if somebody was going into residency now and had the same feeling, I know I want to be a forensic pathologist, would you recommend doing APCP or what would your opinion on, what would you recommend them for their path? So I would honestly, what I tell residents when they come through our office is to do exactly what I did. And that was to do the APCP training, but to only take the AP board. And so um, for me, and, and part of that rationale was you get the training, you get the experience, but 
now we have to do our continual recertification uh, questions every quarter. And I just do mine in forensic pathology and anatomic pathology. And I hear the torture that people go through who (laughs) are are boarded in the clinical pathology and have to continually recertify in that aspect of it. And as you had said, it's not a requirement to become a forensic pathologist to have a board certification in clinical pathology, but you can do the training. You don't have to sign up to take that board. So that's my advice for residents is to just do that four-year program. It's only one extra year. You'll get, you will always be an APCP trained resident, but you don't have to take the clinical pathology uh, board exam. Um, I do do what I did. You just take the anatomic pathology and, and then ultimately the forensic pathology board examination. Interesting. That's, uh, you know, I, nothing wrong with that advice. That's just the first time I've heard that advice. That makes sense to me. And also, I guess you get the side benefit of AP is pretty stereotypically significantly more intense than CP. And when you do uh, APCP, you do end up doing a little bit less AP than you would if you did AP only. Even though you're there for four years, you do only uh, approximately two years of AP. Right. It does give you less exposure to AP to do those combined years. But I think that ultimately going into the pathway as a forensic pathologist where, you know, we I spent a, a very small fraction of my time behind a microscope um, and it's more, you know, what I see with my eyes, what I'm seeing at an autopsy. Um, I think that you will get more than adequate amount of training um, in, in the two years. But my other advice to residents during that four years is do, do also what I did, which was in my first month of residency, I was over there in the, the New York City Office of Chief Medical Examiner I was month two into residency and, and I was already knocking on the door of, of the medical examiner office. And I, and I would go there at weekends. I would go there and spend all of my elective rotations every single year for four years of residency. So by the time I got to fellowship, which I did stay on to do in, in New York City, um, I, you know, I was already competent and ready and able to do forensic autopsies with them because I had spent four years building up to that point. And so that's certainly my other advice is get to know your local medical examiner office, be strategic in where you do your residency so that you, you know, you're already thinking four years ahead as where, where would be a good office to, to train, get to know the local medical examiners. And I would, was doing research projects with them, presenting at the meetings during residency. So, and honestly, that was a nice breather and break from <laughs> the, the, the really intense rotations in the surgical pathology department. It was kind of a, a good relief to be able to go and, and meet forensic pathologists and, and get involved in the field early on in training. So you have a really unique experience then because, you know, most people I'll ask them what it was like the first time they dealt with an autopsy, but because you had done surgery beforehand, it probably for you was a lot less sort of daunting and jarring. And it sounds like even within residency, if you're, I mean, if you're going to the medical examiner's office in your second month knocking on the door, you had very, very early exposure to, to autopsy and to forensics. But what was that like? Do you remember your first forensic autopsy? I do, yes, yes. So most of my forensic autopsies were, when I was a resident, were, were in, the, in the Bronx office um, for the Office of Chief Medical Examiner there when they used to have that running to be able to do autopsies. And um, 
I think the first time I ever did an autopsy because I was so used to surgery, you know, it was just this, it's so different, you know, it, in the autopsy, you know, you can cut through major nerves, you can cut through major blood vessels and there's right. no, you know, whereas I still went into my first autopsy with a very surgical like approach of dissect, very careful dissection. Sure. Layer by all. layer. <laughs> right. And so, but after, you know, after having observed and starting doing more myself, I soon realized that this was a very different skill level that I needed to adapt to. But the but I brought with it the surgical dissection skills and instrument holding skills that a surgeon would have. And so I've kind of built a combination approach now to how I do autopsies, but it's... Um, I do remember that first feeling of doing that first forensic case and, and, and trying to find a way of dissection that wasn't going to damage anything major, but you, you like I said, you soon adapt to it. But it, I do remember the very, I don't remember what the case was, but I do remember going and doing it in the Bronx office. When you went to residency in New York, was that, was that simply you applied to many different residencies and that's, you know, was was what you chose because it seemed like the best program or was there something in particular that drew you to New York specifically? So I applied pretty broadly across the country, but I very much did target New York because because I had already decided that I wanted to be a forensic pathologist. I then, before I applied to residencies, tried to understand where it seemed the best fellowship programs were going to be and how could I best set myself up to get into one of those fellowships. Mm. And so, you know, everybody. So that's very about, strategic. Yeah, very strategic and talked about, you know, Miami, Albuquerque and, and New York were always the three big ones that everyone was talking about and would be the one to target. And so when I got interviewed in New York city, um, you know, it was fantastic. And I thought, well, this is, and, and especially being up in the Bronx and that, that residency program from Montefiore, interesting, has a, has a very um, long history of people going into forensics, which is very unusual. Hmm. There was a, at least one resident a year would go into forensic pathology. Some years we had two people go in. So it's a very unusual program, but they seemed very geared up for getting people into forensics. Interesting. And Anyone that, that were your you know, fellow co-residents that I might know? That's a good question. Who um, One of my favorite co-residents who I do a lot of research projects with, he's still in New York City, is Gregory Dickinson. Um, he works in the Brooklyn office, and him and I do um, a lot of collaborative research projects every year for American Academy of Forensic Sciences usually, and we, we collaborate on research and pull cases from both of our cities and, and present. So he's probably one of my favorites. Oh, really um, cool. Angela Baldwin. Yeah. <laughs> Lots and lots and lots of names of uh, people that have gone from from that program, but so what was I, it about about New York the fellowship? Because it sounds like you chose your residency more or less based on the fellowship in New York, and and they have a a very storied history. And I mean, there's actually numerous books about it. But what was it about New York in particular that that spoke to you for fellowship I reasons? To- I mean. Sure. So I, I wanted to go to a fellowship program that had, like you said, was very well established um, in training you to become what 
you know, the best you could be. And uh, that's what I saw in New York. And what I liked about it was that it had um, multiple, it was a large fellowship program. And so when I was a fellow there, there were, there were four of us who did the forensic pathology fellowship together. The idea of having four of us together for the camaraderie and support for that year of fellowship. And so that was very appealing to me. And then the other part that really appealed to me for New York, and I ended up doing it, was to stay on for a second year of fellowship for forensic neuropathology and cardiovascular pathology. And that's part, one of the only fellowships like that in, in the whole country. And so they had a very unique opportunity there to do that two-year, two-fellowship programs. And so uh, I very much targeted that and wanted to do that. And that's, and that's exactly what I, I ended up doing. I spent two years with them um, doing those two fellowship programs. Interesting. Let me let me start by asking: Do you still uh, do you keep in close contact with any of your co fellows from either of those years? I do. I still talk to two of them, Melissa Gazetta and Jean Meyer. I still talk to those two on an almost daily basis. Oh, that's that's wonderful. It's definitely a fel- the fellowship year. Definitely, as most of these experiences tend to do, it just draws you close together, and it's a lot of teamwork and. And just being able to have somebody else to talk to, you know, shut the door and just be able to talk together as a group. And it was just definitely a very bonding experience over the course of that year and now resulted in sort of this lifelong friendship with people. Well, tell me about that year. What was what was the initial, the, you know, Forensic Pathology General Fellowship? What was that like for you in New York? Because I I went to Miami and I actually did do a rotation in New York. I, I also was very much interested in going to New York. And I, I, man, I had to fight so hard to go from Oregon to get an external rotation for a month in New York. And I rented an Airbnb for a month and, you know, I did all that. Um, and it was, it was great. I had a great experience, but I never really got the impression that I wasn't getting the same experience that the fellows were. And so what was the actual rotation schedule and, and, and sort of how was the overall fellowship structured? There's four of us in that year and we basically worked for an entire year 12 days on two days off 12 days on two days off and we did that for a year and that is how the schedule is set up and the fellows are very much um you know part of the workhorse of that office cutting cases independently having our own tables right from the beginning cutting alongside staff and having you know, having them supervised whilst they're doing their own cases. And so we, you know, it was sort of sink or swim for, for a while there. But we, you know, with that amount of uh, working days over the course of, of that year, it, it, it's just flooding you with exposure and experience. So it, it definitely gets you to the point that you feel um, confident in what you're doing and you can make decisions and they, they trained us so well over that course of the year. And we did so many cases and, and saw so much um, in that office and, and probably, you know, every office will have their own flavor of different population and cases that they see. And, and we certainly saw some things that probably you'd only ever see in New York city. So let me, so, so 12 days on two days off that works out to, so that's, 12 days per two weeks, six. So that that's an average of six days per week. 
assuming that you take two weeks of vacation, that's 300 days of work days. How many cases are, are you doing one case per day? I mean, even that is is more than what is typically expected in a, in a fellowship, at least uh, that's my understanding. Yes. And I think by the end of that year, we probably each had done around 260 cases over the course of that year. Oh, right. So, but at the end, you probably got a little bit of time to focus on, on shutting cases down, I would think. Exactly. Yeah. So it's it's sort of balanced out. Um, So I think, you know, in 260 cases is probably about typical um, when, when you and I were were training, I know that they reduced the the number to 200. I think now is the goal. I think 200 is the minimum. I don't, I don't know. Right. I, I don't, I guess I shouldn't even say, I don't know for sure, but I think it's somewhere, I think 200 is the minimum and 250 is the maximum, I think. Right. I think that's, that's where they want people to be. So what else did you do aside from cutting cases, which obviously is the, the vast majority of the, the workload. Um, I mean, I, when I was there, there were quite a few educational conferences. We did morning meetings every day. Right. There is the, the, the New York office is very well set up for training for both fellows, medical students, residents, anyone who is rotating there. Morning meetings every single day, weekends included. And then on weekdays, we would have an afternoon meeting to review everybody's autopsies from that day. There would be daily two o'clock lectures given by mostly by the staff, forensic pathologists, as well as the fellows. We would have grand rounds and we had the ability to teleconference between all of the different boroughs. So everybody could be included in these, these meetings. So there's a lot of education and not just from forensic pathologists, but you know, the New York office has forensic anthropologists in house as well. And so we would be learning from them as, and of course our toxicologists as well. So a lot of different forensic disciplines under one roof. And so we would be learning from all of them. Um, as the year went on. So a lot of different exposures and experiences that we were able to get during that year. Did you guys do scenes? Did you actually, as, as physicians, did you go to scenes? We, I would say that we had very limited exposure to scenes. And I think every year in that program, they try to adjust how they will incorporate scene, uh, scene experience for the fellows in training. I would say in my year, we, we went to a handful. We really didn't get to go to as many as I would have liked. And most of my scene experience came. We actually spent a week with the crime scene unit from the New York City Police Department, the NYPD. So I spent a whole week with them. Hmm. And so that was where most of my exposure to being on scene was. Now, were, do you feel like there were any... I feel like New York in particular, that office is... I don't know what the word for it is, but they, they're rife with pearls of wisdom and, and unique moments that, that are memorable for people. Do you happen to have any particular moments or, or pearls of wisdom that you remember from your fellowship year that, that you think about? Right. So we actually got given an entire binder <laughs> and in there was, <laughs> and in there was what they call Hirschism, which is the, from the, former chief medical examiner, Charles Harris. And in there was an entire uh, chapter of Hirschisms, of, of phrases and, and things that he said, and that the office has just been carrying forward as his legacy, and, and we still use them. And 
Um, some of them were, you know, fun things that he would say, like, you know, in closing of, of some of our afternoon meetings, Charles Hirsch would have said, you know, um, any, you know, asking if anybody had any more business. If not, he would say it was time for monkey business. And just fun, fun little things um, about him that they, they sort of uh, carry forward and that we still sometimes use. I have some New Yorkers in my office here and we still sometimes use some of Charles Hirsch's uh, phrases. And, um, you know, how he, another one was that he always felt that it, you could solve a case better by using a telephone sometimes than, than anything else and just yeah. getting to talk to somebody. That's one I've heard before too. And, and I fully agree with not that he needs my agreement, but, but still I fully agree that sometimes it just does require a little bit more investigation with the telephone. Um, so the second year of forensics. So just for anyone who doesn't know the way the general process works is you'll do AP residency at minimum, and then you do a fellowship Forensic Pathology Fellowship is one additional year of training. It's pretty intense training, but it's very focused specifically on forensic pathology. And after that, you become eligible for the Forensic Pathology Board exam. And typically, that's when most people will go get a job working as a forensic pathologist, usually as a medical examiner, occasionally working in in hospital roles. But um, you did a very unique thing, which is that second sort of super fellowship year in New York, which to my understanding is... It's an it's a one year fellowship, super fellowship, and it's divided into forensic cardiac pathology and forensic neuropathology. Is that correct? That's correct. It is. Can you tell me more? What was that like? <laughs> right. So my decision to want to do that year, additional year, as I said, had been I had predetermined my destiny from before I was even a resident, and so. I was really excited to get chosen and given the opportunity to do that extra year because that additional year fellowship, there's only two of us for that year. So it's much more close knit and you actually spend most of the time, I would say, doing the forensic neuropathology. Um, It is, for me, it was so much better than having chosen to do an actual neuropathology fellowship because we would actually get to go and sit with the neuropathology fellows who are next door at the um, at NYU, at New York University. That was right next door to the medical examiner's building. So we would have these interesting collaborative sessions with the traditional neuropathology fellows and us as the forensic neuropathology fellows. And whereas they would be fabulous at diagnosing brain tumors and interesting lesions in the brain, but they wouldn't be able to recognize you know, herniation patterns in the brain where the brain is kind of squeezing down outside of the skull in response to trauma, for example, they wouldn't be good at that. Whereas, you know, we were absolutely hopeless in knowing, you know, what kind of brain tumor this was. And so it's a very unique fellowship that is really looking at what, you know, like you and I deal with as medical examiners is looking at a lot of trauma. And then, of course, you know, as neuropathology in our field goes, we do get some interesting, unusual things thrown at us from time to time. Mm-hmm. But it really sets you up well for being um, looking at it for, through the eyes of a medical examiner as opposed to somebody who is sitting in a hospital trying to treat um, brain tumors. So it was, it's very focused on the forensic side of it. And, and, but you get to also see some of the other things at, the, at NYU. So we got the best of both worlds in that sense. Yeah, that's so cool. I, I, I knew about that sort of super fellowship thing 
Um, and that's one of the reasons I had looked into New York and it seems awesome. And I remember, uh, when I was there, when I was there, Barbara Sampson was the chief and she did a lot of the cardiac pathology stuff. And I do remember there was a, a particular case with a, a, a finding that I didn't know was possible. It was a, a young person with a heart that had not grown an entire right coronary. There was no right coronary whatsoever. Ooh. And I just didn't know that was possible. And <laughs> she came down with the heart to, you know, from it had been fixed for specifically for a cardiac evaluation. And she came down with the fellows and, and showed us. And I just thought, man, this, this sort of very specific, very directed teaching seems so useful. And even if not useful, awesome, really fun <laughs> and interesting. Right. And that just seemed so cool. Um, unfortunately for me, it didn't it, back then there was no forensic pathology match and they had a, a really weird system of taking <laughs> residence. So I was unable to go there, but I was very, very lucky and very happy to go to Miami. Um, I'm sure. So I have, I have a few, I'm going to change, change gears just a little bit. And I want to talk a little bit more about what it feels like for you to actually be a forensic pathologist. Cause now you've done all this, right? You, you've, you've, mm-hmm. Grew up in the UK. You went back and forth to the United States a lot, eventually just settling on moving to the United States. You did, you were a surgeon, I mean, for a, a, a reasonably long time and started over, went through pathology, did AP and CP, and then you did <laughs> twice as much fellowship as most of us. And now you've finally done all of it and you actually started doing this job. And this is a job that your mom encouraged you to take based on being interested in true crime and you both were interested. So now that you're doing it and when you first started and now, what, what do you find is like, what's the most challenging thing for you about this, both physically and sort of mentally, emotionally? Yes, it's a different kind of emotion being a forensic pathologist to being a surgeon, I think. I think that the challenge a lot of the time is that we are seeing just the most extreme trauma. You know, whatever I saw in the hospital and was able to treat, those people were still living. Whereas now we see just the extreme end of everything. And we get to see the worst of humanity, unfortunately, in all of the different homicide cases that we deal with. And so I think sometimes the challenge is is not letting that in. And trying to put up some kind of protection around me, around my emotions and my heart, and not to let myself get, you know, distracted by the emotion of the situation. Um, Can you tell me more about that? How do you do that? I think it's hard to find a way of putting that barrier, but I think what helps is having you know, we never work alone at the autopsy table. We always have our mortuary technicians with us. And so being able to, you know, focus when I need to focus intensely, but then also being able to talk to people and ask them how their weekend was or how how the day was and just being able to have my mind thinking about some other things sometimes and having friendly colleagues around and just everybody knows what what the job is, what we need to do, why we're there. But at the same time, being able, being surrounded by people who help lift each other up. And I think that, you know, we lean heavily on each other and me through that and get and helps me separate what I'm seeing and what, um, you know, what I emotionally think about 
And that's not to say that there aren't times where, you know, I'll go and sit in my office and just think heavily about what we just saw and what we just dealt with. And the times that I find myself really having a hard time sometimes is talking to families on the phone and making that connection and hearing their emotion about the person that had died. And I'll cry with them. And, you know, I've had families who have come to the office who've wanted to meet with me and sit with me and and thank me. You know, I, here I am as the last doctor who ever got to take care of their loved one. And to be honest, I still have a family who sends me a Christmas card every year from the time that I had autopsied um, her child. And she still sends me Christmas cards or still call me from time to time. And, you know, we just have this connection with all of our cases, we are the last connection to some of these people that the families have. And that's the emotional part for me is dealing with that side of it. Yeah. And Actually, that can be- I, I want to talk about that for a second, because I think that that's something that's very important to me about this job is uh, I was, I, I worked in the emergency room and even in a very objective sense, there are at least a few patients that, if, if it had not been for me personally, Eric Hanberg having been there, they would be dead and they're alive. And so there are lives mm-hmm. that I saved. There are also a lot of lives that I saved through the work of, of a huge team. And I would say overall, my experience in this country as a clinician was that it, it very much felt like I wanted to help, but I felt like I was on the opposite team of my patients a lot. It felt like we had this adversarial thing. And I, I got thanked, but it was pretty rare. Whereas now I get the feeling that people understand I am on their side and I'm trying to get them answers. And I think they see that because they no longer see me as, as a barrier to getting the treatment they need. They know there's nothing we can do. All we can do is offer answers and we're trying. And I, I, I feel like I get much less adversarial responses and I get, a, I get a thank you from almost every family that I speak with. And I feel like I have even better connections to my, my patients now than I did when I was an emergency medicine doctor. How do, how do you feel about that? I understand. I think that, you know, there's a lot to be said to that. It, 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 it's a very different perspective. We're offering a very different role to the care. But nonetheless, we're there to care and examine and look after them. And that's what I say to families that, you know, if I talk to them before I'm doing an autopsy, if I have an opportunity to talk to the family, I will tell them that. I will look after your son. I promise we will take good care of them. We will look after them. And I want them to know that I mean that, that I am still a physician. I'm going to look after them, you know, uh, to the best of my abilities. And I will do my very best to get whatever answers they need. And, you know, and I feel that, the, as you said, the families respond to that. They know that we are uh, on their side, that we are there to help them. We are here there to help get answers, and we are there to speak on behalf of the person who has died. We're their voice. We're the ones that will tell that story. And, you know, every now and again, we do get the opportunity to still save lives. You know, when we find some genetic problem, that they can then go on to diagnose and, and we can help save the lives of surviving relatives. So even though as a forensic pathologist, people might not automatically think that, but we do. We do get opportunities to, to save lives. So 
you know, so many good things and and so many good positive ways that we can help and interact with our families. With with respect to your work as a as a medical examiner, forensic pathologist, pathologist and, and physician, do you feel like you have any role models that that you base these thoughts on, base your practice on real or fictional people? I think to me that the way I was trained for so, and I think of my New York fellowship almost as a, a six-year fellowship because I spent, you know, all of that time from a residence through to being a fellow with them was with the New York City office, and they brought me up as one of them for six years, really. And so, for so many of them, I owe who I am as a forensic pathologist. You know, one of the names that jumps to mind was Monica Smitty. And she was a force to be reckoned with. And she was, she's probably the person who made me, I think I'd probably model most of my practice on her in that she was always decisive. She was always confident with how she handled things. She loved teaching, um, which is why I, w- I guess I was drawn to her. But she was definitely a no-nonsense person. <laughs> um but that I think for me it was this growing up with the in my pathology side of my life through um, the New York office. But I also have to say, you know, both of my parents, you know, and seeing how they, you know, my father was a physicist, my mother was a nurse, um, and just seeing how they handled their lives professionally and the relations that they had with their own work lives, you know, has helped me. And I still ask my dad for professional advice on how I should approach situations at work. Um, and so I just draw from all of the different sources around me. It's it's nice that you had such a good group in New York to be able to draw from. And it's it's wonderful that you are able to draw from your parents like that. There is something that we have. I, I would say it would be hard for someone to convince me that we don't have the most exposure to out of anyone, certainly in in medicine, but we have more exposure to death and the consequences of death, I would say, even than hospice workers. So Mm -hmm. I think that that's something very unique to our field. And it's something that it scares the hell out of people when they're considering joining this field, because I get asked, how do you cope? How do you deal with it? Isn't it sad all the time? And I have a way that I answer that, but I'm interested. How did you Basically, how do you cope with how much death that we see? How has it affected your thoughts on death? I think, yeah, it's such an interesting question. I think it is inevitable that if you choose forensic pathology as a career that, you know, it does make you look at life perhaps a little differently because you do see absolute tragedy every single day. And I autopsy people every single day who are younger than me. I autopsy people who I know that morning made plans for that night and they never got to do them. And I just see people's lives being ended prematurely. I, you know, we also get to see people who have lived a wonderful life, but so much of what we deal with is people's lives that were cut short. And so I think it has made me look a little differently at life and what is important to me. And refocusing, you know, my spare time to spend with my family. 
and my my spare time to go and enjoy life and enjoy everything it has. Um, enjoying traveling, going out to see the, the theater, concerts, whatever it might be, but just enjoying it and not taking any day for granted because I just it's a daily reminder when I show up to that office of whose lives were cut short, who had plans for that weekend, the, the week after, and they will never get to do them. I mean, one thing for certain that we all know is that nobody gets out alive from this life. One day we will all end, but nobody knows where you are in that line. None of us know. And so I think being a forensic pathologist has helped me look at things and refocus things a little bit more differently and and evaluate what is important. And I think for me, I just want to be one of those people who's 110 years old and and, and kind of skids into my coffin thinking, that was a ride. I did everything I could possibly want to do for the time I was given. And I think that's how I have, it has helped me refocus. And so rather than looking at the negativity of it every day, I think I just take from it and it just reinforces to me that you, you have to go and live your life and enjoy it. It, it, Tomorrow's not promised. And so I think being a forensic pathologist for me, rather than, just taking and absorbing that sadness because I think that that ultimately would be detrimental to you is to just look at it and turn it around and just make you refocus on your own situation and what what gives you happiness and enjoyment. Absolutely. I agree entirely. I, I very much feel the same way. And, uh, you know, that's people always ask me, how in the, how in the world can I do this job and still ride my motorcycle? And I tell them, well, I mean, it's fun. Like that's the bottom line is that I do it because I want to. And whether I ride it or not, I can't say for sure if I'm going to make tomorrow. So if I don't know for sure, I want to ride my motorcycle today. And I mean, I don't ride at night and I try to be reasonable, you know, but, but beyond that, I, I try to still have some fun and I, and I use it as a way to, uh, you know, I, I, I agree with you. I, I want to make sure that I don't delay doing things that I want to do. I do also ask, and and this is true both for the podcast, but also just in real life when I do this work, I I like to ask people if there's anything that you see during, you know, your day to day during cases that still gets to you, that still breaks through the barrier of this isn't just a job. These are, these are real people. And, and, you know, specifically you said these people woke up this morning and had plans for tonight. I think about that a lot is, and for me, the specific thing is when somebody has newly painted nails, because that's just such an indication that, man, they had no idea they were going to die. And I asked Dr. Potaturi, Varsha Potaturi today, and she said for her, it's, it's when somebody has newly like undigested food content, like they had just Mm. eaten. And, you know, you know, today at lunch, it didn't occur to me, as I finished my, my pre-made salmon that I could be dead in 15 minutes. And the thing is, it probably doesn't occur to most of the people we see. And for me, that's, that's what really makes that connection. Is there something for you that, that really hits home and and connects like it gets to you still? I think for me, the time, the cases that I find hardest to deal with are for me, for me, I think it's dealing with, elderly 
the elderly population. And sometimes I'll just see something so horrific that, that happened to one of them. It just, you know, it just I look at them and I think this was someone's grandma, this was someone's grandfather. And for me, I don't know why, but it just really, and that sometimes will emotionally get to me. I will get very sad when I see some something bad that somebody did to an elderly person. I just, I just, it, it really tugs at my heartstrings and just makes me feel feel sad. And as you said, just kind of seeing people's last meals or they just had their last manicure done and, you know, things were just abruptly ended for them. That too, that, that again is just another um, reminder of no one knows what kind of hand of cards you've been dealt and you just don't know. And I don't think you want to know. I think it's, you know, so I for me, it's, kind of a similar thing, seeing people going, you know, the car crash where somebody was on their way to somebody's Christmas Day dinner or the the car crash where somebody, you know, was on their way to someone's wedding or something where somebody's life was just interrupted. Or sometimes the things that will really make me feel emotional sometimes is just these, these freak accidents, these things that you think, oh my goodness. They were just out driving and a tire came loose and crashed through a windscreen and killed somebody. Or just weird things that happen that you just think, oh my goodness, this is just being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the things that sometimes for me will just make me kind of just stop and just and just feel sad about the situation. So is there anything that you've seen in, in this job, or I suppose in your in your prior job as a surgeon, but more specifically this one, is there anything you've seen that has changed the way that you live? Are there any activities you now won't do that you would have otherwise done or, you know, choices you would not make now that you otherwise might have? It's an interesting question because I, and I think Dr. G wrote a book of how, called how not to die. And I think that, you know, you and I as forensic pathologists are in the best seat in the house for writing that book, how not to die. Uh, We can take, so many things from all these cases we see and try and understand how could we have made a different decision that would have led to a different outcome. When I w- what I see now, one of the things that does make me think twice is horse- horseback riding. When I was a child, I rode a lot. I rode horses when I was a child and through to my teenage years. And probably when I was at that age, didn't really understand the hazards of the situation. And now having seen some deaths related to that, <laughs> I think that um, that's one of the hobbies that probably would make me think twice. I probably would never start that again. Um, and I think just for me, um, it's more kind of how, how not to end up with, with the thing that we see the most is, is, is heart disease. How can I live my life as healthy as I can and not end up with this heart disease and just trying to understand lifestyle modifications that does not end up with me having a death certificate with all of these different things on it. And so I think activity wise, um, horseback riding is probably the one that I would avoid uh, doing now. I think it has sufficiently scared me enough. Um, but other than that, I've never been really, I've never been on a motorcycle, so I can't really say much about that. But we, as you know, we do see a lot of those, unfortunately. Yeah. The, uh, the thing with horses, I will say I, I have a cowboy hat sitting f- 
10 feet behind me and my cowboy boots are sitting in the closet. (laughs) And uh, despite those things, I've been on a horse a single time in my life and it was being dragged around by a leash on a guy, you know, at at some, uh, you know, I paid for a a horseback riding experience, which ended up being very much like a little kid at the fair. And that was honestly enough. Horses are terrifying to me. They're massive creatures. And uh, maybe if I had been raised around them, but I mean, as they, they're the size of a moose. It seems like I, they're pretty scary to me too. So I think that's fine. I can understand not wanting to be near a horse. And um, so I, I like to, we're, we're a little past an hour now. And I do like to, when I finish the podcast, because we talk about a lot of stuff that can get a little heavy, I do end the podcast with a little bit of lighter questions. And so I do want to ask um, if you weren't a medical examiner, what, what do you think you would want to do specifically? I'll take an answer in medicine, but I also want to know outside of medicine, what would you want to do? I absolutely would have been a veterinarian. That would have been, that was actually my first career choice was to be a veterinarian. Um, But it was right around the time that I was about 10 years old. um, About nine or 10 years old. I said that, you know, I, I would be interested to be a veterinarian, but then, I became a vegetarian and now I'm a, I've been a vegan now for about 20 years. But at that time, I think I just didn't really understand what a career as a veterinarian would involve, which included euthanizing animals and all this kind of thing. And I soon realized that I would not be able to handle that emotional side of things. Because if you want to talk about being emotional about things, that would have been it. I would never have coped. But the idea of being a veterinarian would have been absolutely wonderful. So that would have, that was my very first career choice. Um, and my, my other career choice when I was a child was actually to be a doctor. That I have this really adorable video of myself as about, it must have been about eight or nine years old, and I was giving my grandfather his injection of insulin. And he asked me, what did I want to be when I grew up? And I said, a doctor. <laughs> so oh, that's cute. I guess, yeah, it's a really wonderful video. And he unfortunately died before he ever got to see me get into medical school. But it's a really wonderful video. And um, I guess I was always kind of predetermined to be a physician from that. But I would love, love to do that. Otherwise, one of my other favorite hobbies is baking. Oh, nice. Yeah. So if I ever won the lottery, I would love to set up a British tea room somewhere here in Houston and um, bake cakes. And obviously my love of tea would be part of that. So that would be another fantastic option. But um, they would be definitely wonderful career options. Or I would go and buy a ranch and just rescue all of the different farm animals and set myself up down there. That would be another wonderful a career choice for me. What a life that would be. Well, it sounds like, you know, uh, people, people in our field tend to uh, be healthy and, and well able to retire. And maybe you'll be, uh, maybe you'll still be able to do those things. You can do both buy a ranch yeah. and uh, start a bakery. <laughs> so the, the last question is I would like for you to tell me about a time in your life, whether it's related to being a doctor or not, that made you laugh really hard. Now to clarify, I'm not asking you to tell me a joke. I also don't, you don't need to make me laugh. I just want to hear about when you laughed really hard. (laughs) Oh my goodness. I guess I could, 
Uh, oh gosh, I have to think about this one. <laughs> it's funny. This is always the hardest question for people, but it's always our favorite story, right? What is, I, I always have uh, difficulty remembering, and it's so difficult to convey the story sometimes, but that's okay. I'm not expecting you to make me laugh. I just want to hear about something that made you laugh. A funny story. Oh my goodness. Okay. I have to think about this time. The last time that I was beyond hysterical, usually probably with my sister, there's usually sometimes that we have, you know that how it is with siblings that you have these inside jokes that have been there for the last 30 years and no one else can understand why you are just crying with laughter at the, at the dining table. <laughs> but, it's, but it's, you know, usually when my sister and I get together, there's usually a moment or two where we will just laugh at something so ridiculously stupid that we absolutely lose control and are just crying with laughter. And um, usually, I think it's just, you know, no one else would understand it. And people usually, if we're having dinner with my parents, they're usually staring at us, uh, wondering what on earth it is. It's so funny, but only her and I understand it. But I guess that's a sisterly bond that we have. But I'm sure other people with siblings can identify. With do you that. remember the last thing, even if it doesn't make sense to me? Do you remember the last thing that that you two shared that made you both laugh? Um. Gosh, what was the last thing that we, it was probably pretty recent over the Christmas, uh, over Christmas time, actually. Um, she's always, she's a bit of a prankster. And so sometimes she'll be, um, changing, you know, Alexa will be playing some Christmas music or something and she'll then go up to it and ask it to play, you know, rap music or something stupid. And then it, we'll wait to see how long it will take for my parents to realize that they're not listening to <laughs> a little town of Bethlehem or and just, <laughs> it's just Cardi B or something. Exactly. Yeah. Which of, you know, which of course they do not know what on earth this is. And so just silly sibling things that, you know, we're, we're basically back to being 10 years old again and just, um, having fun and just in, just doing silly things that I think only siblings do. I love that. And, and just because I know that you have a, an interest in it, what can you, can you tell me what it is that is appealing to you in particular about true crime as a genre? And what, what do you think about the popularity of that genre? It's, I mean, it's a major thing, especially right now. It really is. It, you can barely turn on any television channel any of the major television uh, streaming services that doesn't have true crime and now they're having shows that are winning emmys and all kinds of things it's, it's incredible and it's really interesting because it's really taking advantage of people's misery i mean there's no crime that's a good crime there's something wrong that was done to somebody whether they ended up in their death or otherwise so it's very interesting i think people just are just fascinated by what people what people are capable of how you know these crimes take place and how fascinating some of the stories are where families are turning on one another husbands killing wives entire families being annihilated whatever it might be i think people are just fascinated by the the levels of depravity that some of these people can go to and our and our fascination with serial killers we're just really interested as people as to how can somebody become that? How does somebody become Jeffrey Dahmer? How does somebody become Ted Bundy? How can this be possible? We like to think of, you know, living in this Mary Poppins land, but we're not. And there, there are people walking amongst us. 
who are these <laughs> just really fascinating people. And just to be able to, I think, sit and watch and read. I read a lot of true crime books too, just to try and understand more about how this is even possible. But you're right. It is just an absolute explosion within the last five years or more, I think, of just everyone is just becoming more and more fascinated by it. And, of course, you and I have a front row seat to true crime every single day. You think that we'd have enough and wouldn't want to go home and watch it or read it. But but I guess I do. You know, that's Um, interesting. I don't I don't. I don't hate it. And I certainly don't judge anybody who watches it. I, I don't really watch it, but when it's on or if somebody wants to watch it, often I will find it entertaining um, purely based on the, like, you know, they really go out of their way to put a lot of drama into these stories. And for some, I don't know what it was that you said just now, but it, it gave me this idea and I don't know, I haven't thought it out. This is truly the first time I'm voicing this. So I don't know if this will make sense, but (laughs) But it it rings as maybe this is the same thing that people get out of studying history. You know, we study these these intense right. events that meant a lot to somebody, and maybe this is just sort of modern modern history. We're we're learning these things that are happening, and they're atrocities. But the vast majority of what's in a history book are atrocities, and maybe this is just you know sort of smaller scale version of that. So the same thing that draws people to true crime might be the same thing that draws people to history. These were incredibly important events, at least for the people that were there. I think you're absolutely right. And I think that, you know, the other part of this is one of the reasons I think we do study these atrocities is what can we learn from it? How can we stop this happening? What were the signs in retrospect that we could have prevented these things from happening? And what can we take from it? What can we learn from it? What can we understand and I I think that there's um you know that aspect of it too and I think that there's a personal aspect of it when I see these true crime stories of how could I how can I protect myself how can I not end up on the next documentary you know how can I um protect myself and what what do we know about what's going on in the world around me and so I think that there's just this huge um interest in, in these crimes now and it, it, it is interesting and you know with with conventions and shows and books and, and merchandise it's it's incredible to me it's not something that we saw even probably 10 years ago I would say yeah I and so as someone who's uh, like you just mentioned into into true crime and it's partly trying to figure out what you can do to keep yourself safe do you have any tips things that you do yourself that you think this is based on my experience as a medical examiner and my, you know, sort of participation in all this true crime. I don't even know what you would call it world. Anything that you do that you picked up that you think is a good tip for safety? You know, I would say the one, it's kind of an interesting question because I think the one thing I have learned from both our, from mostly from our job is that the homicides that are featured on the true crime shows are the, are the rare ones. Yes. You know, most, right, like 99% of the homicides that you and I deal with probably are not the, the woman who was walking alone through a park late at night or walked into an alleyway late at night. You know, most of the time, that's the one thing I have learned is that they are incredibly rare, but that is the kind of thing that is featured more heavily out of proportion to the actual homicides that are taking place um, on the television. And so, 
looking at the television shows, I guess the tips that I sort of pick up are just to be very aware of your surroundings, be very engaged in what's around you, not to be flicking through cell phones, talking on the phone and in, when you're traveling, just being very focused on who is around you. But also the other safety tip is if you are in a building for the first time or, or again for a second time, third time, no matter how many times you've been in a place, similar to being on an aircraft, is how can you get out of that place? In it? And everybody always thinks about the way that they came in, but where else could you get out? If somebody's in there shooting people, if there's a fire, if there's a reason that you need to evacuate somewhere very quickly, to be very aware of how you can get out of a situation and exit safely. And I think that's definitely one thing that I have, um, I'm very cognizant of that now. If I go into a restaurant for the first time, if I go into a theater, wherever it may be, I'm definitely more cognizant of if something happened and I needed to get out of here quickly, how would I do it? Interesting. So one of the things that comes up for me personally um, that people always talk about safety issues is specifically social media. Because I, mm-hmm. I obviously have a podcast and I do all this other social media stuff that I do. And I made the choice a long time ago that it was important to me that I use my real name because I want people to know that what, I, what I'm putting out, I believe in. But that also means that my real name, along with my face, is available and my voice is available online a lot. How do you feel about a social media in general and especially in the context of being a medical examiner? Yeah, it's been very interesting. You know, I've been on, you know, most of the social media accounts for a long time now. And for me, as somebody who has been in two different countries and in multiple states, it has been a wonderful way of keeping connections with with friends that I've met along Mm -hmm. this journey. And so I love having it for those reasons, as well as, you know, being able to see what's going on in the news or or, um, in my favorite sports team. So are you a big but social media user? I do. I like using it. I, I do. Um, I, I do enjoy it. And I like being able to share what I'm doing with my friends online. But I think you do bring up a good point that, you know, as you said, it's all discoverable material. And it, it somebody wanted to look and see who I was and what I looked like and find out some information about me. To the best of my ability, I put things on, you know, not on a public setting so that I don't have, you know, if I'm traveling somewhere, I don't put that on a public setting, but I share it with friends. Um, But it does, um, it does bring an awareness that, you know, to be careful of what you share because get into the wrong hands. Yeah, that's certainly true. And I think, I don't know. I think, uh, gosh, it was probably around the time Facebook first came out. I just came to this, I don't know what you call it. It's almost a nihilistic decision where I thought, well, at this point, I think my own privacy has been dead, right? I carry around a cell phone with a GPS and I have to sign my name on everything I do. And they took my blood and my fingerprints to join college. (laughs) And at some point it just started to feel like, well, if I just use a pseudonym on my emails, who am I kidding? And so I, I sort of take this nihilistic approach, but I, I mean, I do know that there is some danger associated with being as open as, as I tend to be on these things. But 
you know, I guess I'll just keep my fingers crossed and hope everybody has positive <laughs> things in, in store for me. But hopefully I don't end up in uh, in your morgue anytime soon. Me too. <laughs> All right. So um, this is usually when I'll end the podcast, but I, I'd like to ask, do you have any sort of last minute thoughts, pearls, words of wisdom, tips, things to think about? The people who listen to the podcast tend to be people who are interested in the field and oftentimes are people who are considering becoming part of the field. Anything that you want to say to them? Absolutely. I would say that if you are thinking about becoming a medical examiner, then you're definitely in the right place. Listening to these podcasts with Eric is a definitely sounds like a wonderful place to start. And just getting in, in, immerse yourself as early as you can, whether it's a medical school or residency, to start thinking about where you want to be. I, I'm somebody who's a very much a long-term planner and I, you know, I know I'm not everybody is the same. You know, we have a nationwide shortage of forensic pathologists. And so we definitely need people to get involved and get interested in this field and to look at it in a way that maybe they've never considered before um, and get exposed to it as early as you can to get a better understanding of what it's really like to be a forensic pathologist and also understand what career opportunities there are to you and where you can work and how, how our career and how our field is set up. I would just say get immersed as early as you can and start attending conferences as early as you can, get connections, meet people, um, reach out to people like us and ask questions. Um, I will always give an honest answer, <laughs> always. Excellent. Well, I think all that's great advice. And on that note, do you have any social media or ways that you'd like for people to contact you or any, any way that people could get a hold of you if they wanted to? Yeah, I'm on both on Facebook and Instagram. Um, so happy for people to look me up on there. Happy for them to connect with me through those. Um, what are, what are uh, your or, handles? So um, it is Dr. Hannah J, which is D-R. H-A-N-N-A-H-J, Dr. Hannah J, and that's my both uh, Facebook um, and Instagram. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing my podcast and telling everyone what it's been like for you becoming a medical examiner. And uh, if anyone wants to get a hold of me, I'm at the Forensic MD on all uh, sort of social media on TikTok, on YouTube, on Instagram. I, I don't have any idea what my Facebook is. It's probably something like that. And uh, if you're interested in forensics and specifically forensic pathology, I recommend you check out the forensic pathology subreddit. That's reddit.com slash r slash forensic pathology. There's some sticky posts at the top that tell you about the pathway to get here. And you, there's a lot of forensic pathologists on there that are happy to answer questions. If you feel happier typing questions than uh, on Reddit than anywhere else, if you're interested in forensics, but you don't necessarily want to go to medical school to become a forensic pathologist, I recommend going to Reddit dot com slash r slash forensics and there are a lot of forensic professionals that are in other adjacent fields that would be happy to tell you about their work and so it's a way to get involved if you don't necessarily want to do exactly what we do otherwise if you are interested in some educational materials you can go to the name.org t-h-e-n-a-m-e.org that's the national association of medical examiners website they have educational materials. They have some quiz question of the week kind of things. They also have a place where you can hire private forensic pathologists if you're looking to hire someone for an autopsy. 
But otherwise, I think that's it for this time. So thanks for uh, joining me on Becoming a Medical Examiner, and I'll see you next time.